This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Today's scripture reading is found in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Mark 2, 1 to 12. You have your Bibles, get those open. You'll want to see those um, verses in front of you. Starting in verse 1, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above. By digging through it and then lowered the mat the the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that was what they were thinking in their hearts and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is God's word. Is a disciple different than a Christian? Over the years in ministry, I have noticed that there uh, has been a subset of churchgoers who make a distinction between the two, as though a disciple is just a more serious type of Christian. I don't think that distinction, though, will hold up under the scrutiny of the scriptures. In other words, if you're a Christian, you're simultaneously called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's one of the things that the gospel writers are trying to show us. On the one hand, they're painting a picture of Jesus. But on the other, they're also showing us what the nature of true discipleship looks like. And that's true of this passage in front of us today. It helps us see indicators of what it means to be a true Jesus follower. We're going to look at three from this text today. Characteristics, three characteristics of a true Jesus follower. It entails this, a plucky pursuit of Christ, a confrontation of the deepest problem, and dependence on the mercy of Christ. 
plucky pursuit of Christ, the confrontation of the deepest problem, and dependence on the mercy of Christ. Indicators of a true Jesus follower. First, a plucky pursuit of Christ. Now before I get into this, I want to back up a little bit and just mention something about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science and art of biblical interpretation. So whenever we do Bible study, we actually interpret it. We make observations about the text. We come to some conclusions about what meaning the text is conveying. That's hermeneutics. That's interpretation. And one of the things we need to remember when we do Bible study is that there are no wasted words in Scripture. There are no place fillers. Why is that? Well, the first reason is the most significant reason, and that is all of Scripture is breathed out by God. Every word is there because God wanted it there to begin with. He meticulously arranged for it to be there. That's the first reason why there are no wasted words. The second reason, and this is more of a pragmatic reason, uh, the second reason there's, there's no wasted words is that they had actually limited resources on which to put words to begin with. Uh, they used papyrus and ink. It's much different than what we call ink today. But they didn't have an unlimited supply of this. So they had to be picky. They had to be choosy about what words were going to go on there and what words were not going to go on there. That stands in stark contrast to de- today where we seem to have unlimited paper, unlimited ink, unlimited surfaces on which we can put words. It was very different in the ancient world. That, that's the reason there are no wasted words. Everything was meticulously thought through. Every word, every phrase, every sentence, every paragraph, everything is there by design. Now, already in Mark's gospel, Jesus has established a lengthy track record of healing. (laughs) The word is out. And after returning home to Capernaum, the crowds surround the house where he's staying. And he, in response to the crowds, it's interesting, he preaches to them. He preaches the word to them. Now, upon first blush, you wouldn't necessarily think much of the crowds, but Here's the thing about no wasted words. As you read through Mark's gospel and pay attention to the light um, that Mark paints the picture of the crowds in, they have a specific role in Mark's account of the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Taken as a whole, uh, Mark doesn't present the crowds in a positive light. They routinely obstruct access to Jesus. They treat him with ambivalence and even opposition. So in this story, Mark uses them as a foil to the plucky gang of four who take matters into their own hands to the point of digging a hole through the roof of the house. So in looking at this, this foil, this contrast between the crowds and the gang of four, we're given our first glimpse into the nature of true discipleship, our first indicator of a true follower of Christ. So in contrast to the crowds who demonstrate passivity, at best curiosity, maybe even ambivalence, true discipleship involves a plucky pursuit of Christ. So with firm resoluteness, the true followers of Jesus illustrated in this group of four, work around obstacles to get to Jesus. They don't throw up their hands and say, oh, well, you know, it's too crowded, it's too hard, it takes too much time, it's too much effort, I guess we'll try this another day. No, true followers of Christ figure out ways to get over hurdles. The season we're in can be a hurdle 
to getting in front of Jesus. It's really easy, I think, at this juncture of life to say, you know what, I'll just wait. I'll just wait till we're able to go back to church and then I'll start paying careful attention to my walk with Jesus, my relationship with Jesus. Is that characteristic of a plucky pursuit of Christ? Think for a minute about your own journey with Christ over these last six weeks. Have you demonstrated a determined pursuit of him? Have you demonstrated a determined pursuit of Jesus over these last six weeks? Now there's more to it than that. Think about how the crowd would have reacted to this plucky gang of four. How would the crowd react to their behavior? They're digging holes in a roof. That's not standard code of conduct in the ancient world. On the face of it, the behavior's odd. How would the crowds react? I don't know, maybe they're surprised, maybe they're appalled, they might be irritated. Uh, the, the, the crowds may have thought this group of four to be foolish. At the very least, they're probably creating conditions for social awkwardness in their pursuit of Jesus. And what they're doing isn't the cool thing to do, but they don't seem to care. That's just it. That's the nature of true discipleship. They don't they seem to care how the masses will respond to their pursuit of Jesus. They're not really concerned at this point with social acceptability. Once they succeed in getting their friend in front of Jesus, the text says that Jesus saw their faith. <laughs> so Jesus has given his stamp of approval that what they've just done is an expression of faith, true faith. This is the behavior of a true Christ follower. I understand the temptation for this um, acutely. In the modern world today, in the church, just in living the Christian life, um, I understand why and how we can start giving quite a bit of time and attention to being culturally acceptable. But it's exhausting trying to fit in with culture. Maybe as Christians, as a church, we need to be a little bit more unfashionable, a little weird, a little strange in our pursuit of Christ. For example, saying no to work and play on Sunday mornings because we value the gathering of the church the way Jesus intended it to be, that will certainly be strange to the crowds. Attending Bible studies, believing in the resurrection, praying in public, enjoying sex only in the context of a heterosexual marriage, giving generously to the church and missions work, sharing your faith publicly. All of that, all of these practices, all these demonstrations of faith can be socially awkward. But a robust pursuit of Christ is going to result in all sorts of people thinking we're strange. But maybe that should be our goal. One indicator of a true Jesus follower is a plucky pursuit of him. Second, second indicator of a true follower of Christ is a confrontation of the deepest problem. A confrontation of the deepest problem. So in the first indicator, it was the disciple 
who is showing us true discipleship. And the second indicator, it is gonna be Jesus showing us true discipleship. So while the plucky gang of four is off to a good start, Jesus actually won't let them stop short of being a true follower of him. He takes them farther into discipleship. The first words Jesus says to this paralyzed man are absolutely stunning. If you're the paralyzed man, what are you thinking and feeling as you land at the feet of Jesus? Your friends have gone to extraordinary measures to get you there. You yourself have been desperate for years, maybe since birth. And out of nowhere, this miracle worker appears on the scene who's in healing people left and right. And this is your chance. This is your shot. You're finally in front of them. This is it. This is your moment. You're finally going to regain use of your legs. And the first words out of this miracle worker's mouth are, your sins are forgiven. How do you respond to that? My sins are forgiven. Well, Jesus, that's very kind of you. But can't you see? I have a more immediate problem here. Jesus is saying, yes, I see your problem. And it is a problem. But it's not your deepest problem. It's actually not your most immediate problem. Your suffering isn't your most pressing need. Your circumstances aren't your most pressing need. Your deepest problem, your most pressing need is your sin, not your suffering. Jesus is taking this man deeper into being a true follower of Christ. And he's saying to him, your deepest problem isn't your circumstances, but your sin. This is remarkable. It's profound. It should cause us to pause and think for a minute about what we think are our most acute problems in the moment. What do you think is your most pressing need? Maybe you think it's a physical one like this guy. Maybe it's relational. It's your marriage, your relationship with your kids. Maybe you think your most pressing need is circumstantial. Your job, your financial needs. Jesus says no, no. Those aren't your most pressing needs. Those aren't your deepest problems. Your sin is. Now, Jesus is not ignoring his physical ailment. He's not saying it's not a problem. He's going to heal that in a minute, acknowledging this is a problem. He sees that. What, What Jesus is doing is remarkable. Jesus is protecting this man from thinking, if only I could walk, then everything would be okay. He's protecting this man from thinking that. When Jesus takes us by his side and disciples us, one of the things he's gonna do is prevent us from thinking things like, if only my marriage was better, then I would be okay. If only I had a job I liked, then I would be okay. If only we could go back to the way things were in February, then I would be fine. Jesus is not gonna let us stop short of true discipleship. Cynthia Heimel wrote a book some years ago in which she recounts observations she made of uh, famous actors and actresses. Actually, before they were famous, she started documenting that and 
interviewing them and, and she compiled some of this stuff into a book she wrote. And, and as she was observing their lives, before they made it big, as she was observing their lives, she wrote this. She said, when they were struggling like us, saying, if only I had that, then I would be happy and content. When they were like that, they were just like the rest of us. They were stressed, they were anxious, but when they got the deepest desire of their hearts, they became awful, unstable, angry, manic, they actually became less happy than they used to be. They wanted fame, and when they got it, the next morning they wanted to overdose. Why? She asks. And, and as far as I know, she's not a believer, but she makes an astute observation. She says, all their fantasies had been realized, yet the reality was still the same. If they were miserable before, they were twice as miserable now because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was gonna make everything okay, that was gonna make their lives bearable, that was gonna provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusioned men turned them howling and insufferable. In other words, when they realized the deepest desire of their hearts didn't give them what they wanted, they became miserable. And then she writes this, she says, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then giggles merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. But Jesus is saying, I'm not going to play that rotten joke on you. I'm not going to play that rotten joke on you. I'm not going to just heal your body and let you think you got your deepest wish. I'm not going to heal your marriage and let you think the issues have been addressed. I'm not going to give you that dream job or that financial security and let you think that your most pressing need has been met. I'm not going to do that. True Jesus followers plunge deeper than the external circumstances. They don't settle for the if-onlys. I want to push deeper into this a little bit. Think about the difference between a thunderstorm's effect effects on, the body of, on a body of water and an earthquake's effects on a body of water. When a thunderstorm hits a, a, a body of water, it agitates the surface of it. It, it, it can make it nasty and, and, and dangerous. It really churns up the waves. But if you, if you dive 50 feet or 100 feet below the surface, you may not know there's a thunderstorm happening. When an earthquake hits, it, ha it hits at the bottom of the sea and it agitates the water from the bottom up. And in some cases creates a tsunami. Jesus is saying, go deeper. You think you've got a thunderstorm problem. You think your most pressing problems are on the surface, your physical ailments, your relational problems, your circumstances. You think that if I just calm the storm, your life will be how you always imagined it could be. But that's not the issue. You don't have a thunderstorm problem, Jesus says. You have a tsunami problem. The problem is not what's not what happening at the surface. Your problem is deeper than that. The problem of your life is happening in the depths. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Eustace is a character you kind of just want to slap uh, until his transformational experience with Aslan. He was arrogant and self-centered and all-around annoying. Um, he wore on Edmund and Lucy to no end. In the book, The Voyage of the Don Treader, on one of the islands where they land, Eustace ends up finding a dragon's lair and it's filled with treasure. It's 
filled with treasure. And uh, this, he becomes intoxicated with the wealth that's in front of him. He ends up putting a, a gold bracelet on and he falls asleep on the treasure. And when he wakes up, he's been turned into a dragon. And Lewis recounts it this way. Sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. Now Eustace had fleeting thoughts of relief at being the biggest thing around, but he quickly realizes that he's cut off from his friends. He's cut off from all humanity and he starts to feel the weight of loneliness and desperately wants to change. Well, that night, Aslan comes to Eustace and leads him to a pool of water, but Aslan told him he has to undress first. And by that, he means he's gotta, he's gotta peel off his dragon skin. He can't go swimming in the pool. He can't go bathe in the pool looking like a dragon. So, so Eustace starts to peel away the, the layers of dragon skins. But no matter how many layers he peels off, Eustace still finds that he's a dragon. One layer after one layer after another layer after another. He's still a dragon. And then Aslan comes to him and says, no, no, Eustace, you have to let me do it. You have to let me do it for you. And this is what Eustace said. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. Well, he pulled the beastly stuff off just as I thought I had done myself before the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass. Only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he threw me in the pool and it smarted like anything. But only for a moment. Then I saw I had become a boy again. And Jesus is saying, I've got to take you deeper. You've got to let me take my claws and go all the way to your heart and change the main things that your heart wants most. See, the true follower of Jesus knows Jesus has claws. And he's not interested in peeling away the surface layers. He wants to get down to the heart. He wants to address the deepest problems. That's the second indicator of a true follower of Jesus. A third indicator of a true follower of Jesus is dependence on the mercy of Christ. So on the one hand, a, a true follower of Christ isn't satisfied with resolving surface issues. A true follower of Christ is keenly aware of the greener grass conspiracy. If only I had that, then I would be content. On the other hand, a true follower of Christ realizes our deepest problem, our sin, makes us desperate and dependent. A true follower of Christ, a true follower of Christ has experienced desperation. 
How do we know that from this story? Well, the man's physical condition is a picture of his spiritual condition. He's broken, he's helpless, he's completely dependent on others for everything. There's no amount of therapy that's gonna get this guy to walk again. There's no amount of of self-improvement that's gonna give him use of his legs again. This is a picture of what our sin does to us. Sin renders us broken, helpless, and completely dependent on Jesus to deal with it. There's no amount of therapy, there's no amount of self-improvement that can deal with the problem and restore us. So a true follower of Christ knows this. A true follower of Christ knows Jesus has to do the work. Jesus has to deal with our sin problem. And this is where it gets scandalous. Did you notice in the story those four controversial words Jesus utters to this man? Incredibly controversial words. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Try to see how scandalous this is. Let me try to put it in perspective for you. Imagine you're out with a friend Um, summer night, warm summer night, you're walking the streets of Cedarburg and out from the shadows um, leaps uh, a mugger. He mugs you, beats you, steals your stuff and you end up in a hospital but your friend is left untouched. Imagine the next day your friend comes to you to visit you in the hospital and says, be encouraged. I found the muggers and I've forgiven them for what they did. How would you respond? You got to be kidding me. You did what? Who are you to forgive them? They didn't lay a finger on you. I'm the one in the hospital with broken bones. So your instincts are right. Only the offended person can forgive. In this story, Jesus is the one doing the forgiving. Only the offended person can forgive. A true Jesus follower comes to this recognition. I'm a mugger and my victim is Jesus. At the end of World War II, a Jew by the name of Simon Weisenthal was um, still clinging to life in Auschwitz uh, when this was after all his extended family had been wiped out. And at this juncture, the the war was actually just weeks from being over and um, it was in its final days. Uh, Weisenthal was part of a work party when he was suddenly pulled out by German guards and shoved into a room. And in the room, there was a young German Nazi soldier there, maybe 19 years old. He had suffered grievous wounds and was clearly going to die. But before he died, he wanted to talk to a Jew. And in God's peculiar providence, the Jew who was selected and pulled out of line and shoved into this room was Simon Weisenthal. The young Nazi explained why he wanted to see him gasping for each breath, not long to live at this point, he acknowledged that the Nazis had treated the Jews horribly and that he himself had engaged in these atrocities. But now he wanted the Jews' forgiveness. And Weisenthal was standing there listening to this young soldier talk. He was reasoning it out in his head. And later he he wrote up his reflections in a little book called The Sunflower. Most of the pages of that short book describe what flashed through Weisenthal's mind as he listened to this mortally wounded soldier. And the reasoning is this. He said, who can forgive but those who've been offended? The most offended parties of the Holocaust were dead. In Auschwitz, they had already been burned in the ovens. How how can a survivor 
like Weisenthal, pronounced forgiveness on behalf of those who died. How can he speak for the dead? If the most brutalized victims of the Nazis are dead, then there's no one qualified to pronounce forgiveness. So there is no forgiveness for the Nazis. And without saying a single word, Weisenthal listened to the, the young soldier and then he turned and he walked out of the room. After the war was over and he had written his little book, Weisenthal sent it to ethicists all around the world, Christian, Jewish, various backgrounds. And he asked them to answer a single question. Did I do what was right? And he kicked off a furious exchange among ethicists all over the world. The fact of the matter is Weisenthal almost got it right. He was surely right to insist that only the offended party can forgive. That is right. But according to the Bible, the most offended party is God. This is what's so scandalous about Jesus pronouncing forgiveness of sin throughout his ministry. Jesus is pronouncing forgiveness, which means he is the most offended party. He's the only one qualified to pronounce forgiveness. Your sins, past, present, future, have been committed against him. So a true follower, a true Jesus follower comes to this recognition. Your greatest need in this life is to hear Jesus say to you, your sins are forgiven. And what makes it possible for him to make this pronouncement? Why is he able to do that? The rest of the New Testament actually spends time explaining that. One place is in Ephesians 1. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Through the blood of Jesus, there is forgiveness, Paul is saying. The two are connected in fact, the author of Hebrews explicitly says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why? Why was the cross necessary for our forgiveness? Well, when someone wrongs you deeply, I mean deeply, deeply, deeply wrongs you, there are only two possible ways to respond to that and both of them entail suffering. One thing you can do is get back at them. You can retaliate. You can act revenge. You find ways to hurt them. You make them pay for what they did to you. That's one way to respond to it. It involves suffering. The other way is to forgive. But when you forgive, you suffer because you end up bearing the loss of the reputation. You bear the abuse. You bear what the, whatever the injustice was that was done to you. You bear that up in yourself. You suffer when you forgive. The same is true of Jesus. He can't just let our sins go. He can't just let them slide. That's impossible. He has two choices. Retaliate against the perpetrators, us, or forgive. But both options involve suffering. On the cross, Jesus is doing something cosmically, what we have to do individually if we want to forgive a sin. If you forgive someone for hurting you, you suffer. On the cross, Jesus is forgiving by suffering himself rather than making us suffer. This particular indicator of a true follower of Jesus might be surprising. A true Jesus follower knows at the core of their being 
Their greatest need in this life is to hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. If you think you have a more pressing need than that, you're not really understanding what it means to follow Jesus, nor are you understanding the significance of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Christian, your greatest need, your greatest need in this life is to hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. And once you've heard that pronouncement, it makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world because here's what happens. Psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, you pick up your mat and you walk out in full view of the ambivalent crowds and you enjoy a new life, restored, whole, and overwhelmed by the mercy of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, your mercy is rich and deep, awe-inspiring. Though we have wronged you, mugged you, sinned against you in innumerable ways, you forgive the one who comes to you desperate and dependent. I pray for the one watching or listening to this who has never understood why their greatest need in this life is to hear you say of them, your sins are forgiven. Illuminate their minds and hearts to see the enormity and heinousness of sin and the price you paid to forgive it. And what a great gift that is. We respond to you now in worship as we graphically remember the cost of forgiveness through the Lord's Supper. For your honor, we worship you. In your name, amen.